0: The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. I am Tomera Anan, Senior Reporter with Lloyd's List, and I'm bringing you today's podcast from New York. Today, we will focus on some of the contentious issues surrounding vessel pollution cases and whistleblower awards. Under U.S. law, Crew members who bring forward information that leads to a successful prosecution in a vessel pollution case are entitled to up to half the fine levied on the guilty party. The U.S. has awarded tens of millions of dollars to whistleblowers throughout the years, while also collecting more than three quarters of a billion dollars from polluters. Most experts, and certainly the Justice Department, seem to agree that it is extremely difficult to tell whether an illegal discharge took place in the middle of the ocean without a crew member reporting it. However, there is a discussion to be had about the unintended consequences that these potentially life-altering awards can have. To shed more light on this highly nuanced issue, I've spoken with two legal experts who have somewhat diverging opinions on the matter. Stephen Kahn is one of the nation's leading whistleblowing attorneys, a partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm of Kahn, Kahn, and Colapinto, and the founder of the National Whistleblower Center. George Chalos is a principal and founding member of the international maritime law firm Chalos & Co. He has extensive experience in maritime, admiralty and insurance law, and unrivaled expertise in MARPOL litigation. We'll start with a quick overview of MARPOL and the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships. First, we'll hear from George, and then from Stephen.
0: So, uh, MARPOL is an international treaty. It's often known as MARPOL 7378. And uh, I think everybody could agree that uh, it is a good idea for the world to come together a- and share the common goal of protecting our oceans, save our seas. And uh, it's a place for, for some people to survive on. It's a source of food. For others, it's a source of recreation. And for yet others, it's a source of beauty, right? Um, but the problem with the treaty, while it's well-intended, um, it is not self-executing. So uh, each country has to enact domestic legislation to give uh, rise and to implement uh, the, the, the goals of the treaty. In the United States, we have what's known as the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships. That's our version of MARPOL, and it, You'll find within both uh, the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships and its implementing regulations, uh uh, express references to the marpole treaty of course the treaty is not u.s law the act to rent pollution from ships is Uh, unlike the treaty and unlike the domestic legislation in any other country in the world our version includes a whistleblower provision and that's found at 33 u.s code 1908 and in that section of the u.s code What it says is anyone who gives information that leads to the payment of a criminal fine or a civil penalty for a violation of the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships, that that individual or individuals may get up to half the amount of the the amount paid as a reward for giving the information.
2: The United States uh, implements the Maripol Convention, which prohibits pollution on the high seas through a law known as the APPS, the Act to Prevent Pollution on Ships. And the way the United States gets transnational jurisdiction over ocean pollution that occurs outside of U.S. waters and usually occurs by ships not owned or flagged in the United States is through a log, a piece of paper that requires the ship's captain or engineers to record every discharge. And if a discharge is not properly recorded, they can be fined a very high fine, $500,000 or even more, and be accused of obstruction of justice and other fine, and other crimes. So we get the jurisdiction by the log, inaccurate log, and it becomes the whistleblower, the person on the ship who has direct evidence that the log is inaccurate, who becomes the central player in the prosecutions.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the Justice Department openly states that these cases are typically highly dependent on a whistleblower coming forward, correct?
2: That's correct. They go, every case, they go into the court, public record, and explain the central role that the whistleblower plays. And we have, in the United States, we have other similar laws, and the government often publicizes them to encourage more informants to come forward.
1: George estimated that the ballpark figure to resolve a Marple violation is about 2 million. I asked him what he thinks that means for whistleblowers.
0: But if you look at the number of 2 million as the ballpark of what we're talking about now to resolve a Marple matter in the United States, that means up to a million dollars is available for a whistleblower reward payment. So uh, I think if you look at things in relative terms, while uh, I think many people would say, God, if I just won the lottery and got a million dollars, my life would be so different. Uh, I think that uh, view is uh, really amplified when you look at the who are the potential whistleblowers. It, it, are, it is, uh, ordinarily low-level seamen working on board the ship. Um, oftentimes, it is people like oilers and wipers who, as you, you may know, uh, are um, paid a surprisingly low wage. Uh, I've seen uh, union contracts that some of these uh, fellas work under where they're making like $600 a month a month. That means if they work an eight-month contract, uh, they're they're making $4,800 for their work for the year. Uh, So for those types of individuals that work on that type of uh, financial basis, a million dollars is not only life-changing, but it's life-changing for everyone in their uh, immediate family, their extended family, and probably most people that are known to them in their hometown, and home villages.
1: I asked George whether these potentially life-altering awards can create a problem of unintended consequences and distorted incentives.
0: Um, There is a problem, Tomer. It's a big problem. And and I'll explain the problem uh, because it's systemic. There are better ways in which the problem can be Um, addressed by regulatory bodies and enforcement agencies. What we're doing now here in the United States is um, really terrible stuff. And I'll explain uh, in in a bit more detail of what's going on. So there are, as we spoke about, um, a, a universe of cases that arise from an individual coming forward and presenting allegations that uh, bad uh, things have been happening at sea, right? Guys have been taking shortcuts. There's been discharges uh, that have bypassed the pollution prevention equipment. And uh, by extension, the record keeping, the required record keeping is not being maintained accurately. The oil record book's been uh, either falsified by by omission or commission, right? So individuals that are percipient witnesses and they see this occurring or believe they may have seen it occurring or they suspect that this has been occurring have two options, right? The first option is to report it using internal reporting procedures, whether it be going to the officer of the watch or going to the captain or calling the DPA or using the company's toll-free hotline or, or otherwise making a report to somebody shoreside who can then take action, right? Or they can do absolutely nothing and wait until the ship comes to the United States with the prospect of receiving a life altering reward, right, a huge monetary, big bag of cash, huge uh, monetary reward for doing that. Now, if they do the former, meaning they follow the procedures and they report it internally, um, what do they get? They maybe get a thank you, maybe they show up in the Manning Agency's uh, monthly magazine saying great job to, to this uh, seafarer or that seafarer. But the next morning they're going back to work uh, and they're gonna have to continue working for the remainder of their working life. When they weigh that against the potential of receiving a gigantic reward from the United States that basically puts them on easy street, you can see how this creates a tension between doing the right thing immediately uh, and putting a stop to the bad acts or the misconduct and protecting the environment or sitting quiet and keeping this in their back pocket for their personal gain later down the road. So that's the first problem with this. The second problem with is once there is a report to the. US authorities or the. US authorities um, decide based on their own investigation and inspections that there is potentially some misconduct occurring on board a ship what do they do with the crew? It's robotic. They, they um, functionally detain for an engine room based marpole violation, the entire engine crew and the captain of the ship. And they're holding these people in the United States for a year, 18 months, two years. Uh, and they're just holding them in a roadside motel. If you were, if the, if the United States government was to arrest a a drug mule coming over the border. The rules say that the witnesses who get arrested as material witnesses get deposed and sent home in a very quick amount of time, like 10 days. But for these seafarers, uh, they have no, no one fighting for them, oftentimes no one fighting for them. And they're here for an indefinite stay and it's always an extended stay. They miss birthdays, they miss holidays, They miss the births of children, the deaths of parents. Uh, It's really terrible, terrible stuff.
1: Turning back to Stephen, I asked him whether he thinks that the whistleblower program can or does indeed incentivize seafarers to ignore illegal discharges until their ship calls in U.S. ports with the thought of collecting handsome rewards.
2: Okay, that's a great question. And there's many ways to answer it. We will start with, I think you'd have to be a little crazy to report it when you're on the high seas because often the captain and the top management are those responsible for the crimes. And you have very little rights when you're sitting there on the high seas and your ship may not come to a US port for six, seven, eight months later, you could hit two or three other ports and be fired or thrown out. Your vulnerabilities after you witness this type of crime are tremendous. We would always recommend people to remain confidential. Second, a crime has been committed. Accountability must be obtained. Other countries don't enforce this law. There's no enforcement record. You're not gonna get the law enforced in Liberia or Turkey or China. It just won't happen. So if someone commits a crime, they should be held accountable and right now the country where they can be held accountable is the United States under this law. Why should someone get away with pollution, with violating the law? Because they want them to be polite? In my eyes, are they want them to be stupid? Furthermore, the law permits them to obtain this compensation, not because they want the whistleblower to be rich, but they want to deter the crime, they want every captain on every ship to be aware that their own crew can turn them in, prosecute them criminally, and that is how you deter the pollution. So uh, I I dug up one thing from one of the uh, cruise ships where they did a training after they were clobbered with like a $15 million fine. And their training was as follows, report every instance of a discharge. And then they said in bold print, don't shoot the messenger. In other words, the company's attorneys and compliance officials were trying to get the message To the captains, report the discharges, don't retaliate. And they were only doing that after they were prosecuted severely. That's called
1: deterrence. That's how you enforce the law. There are critics, though, who would argue that even, you know, companies who invest tremendous amount of resources into compliance and want to be compliant um, are put in a position where... You know, greedy or disgruntled crew members can wrongly cause them serious damage. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see an issue here?
2: No, because I see it all from the opposite perspective. I see cases where seamen are giving good evidence and there is no prosecution because the the the, the police officers are, they're understaffed. Remember, the only way a reward is paid is if there's a successful prosecution. There will be no successful prosecution unless there is admissible evidence that reaches the beyond reasonable doubt standard for a criminal sanction. This isn't just made up. People don't get awards because they turn in information. You get nothing. You only get an award if there's an actual successful prosecution predicated on admissible and valid evidence. So the laws drive real evidence, real evidence of crimes to the hands of law enforcement to permit them to do a successful prosecution. I know of no case, no case in which the underlying crime was either not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and in most cases admitted to. Furthermore, the mechanisms to do these discharges, it isn't like some lower level ship hand in the basement just starts dumping oil out of the ocean. These are generally done with the knowledge and consent of the management of the ship right then and there.
1: Mm -hmm. Has there been much change in this sphere since you've started working these cases? Uh, no, uh,
2: I, I've been representing whistleblowers for almost 40 years. And we came upon this law in researching, uh, wildlife trafficking and other laws that where ships are used to facilitate transnational crime. And, uh, primarily we're trying to publicize the law and we're trying to push to get the US government to be more effective in uh, implementing and using this resource. But it's under-resourced. There are not that many cases. The cases they do use are fantastic. They, they, they create, they've created a record. I think they're trying to use these handful of cases to deter wrongdoing. But I think there needs to be a change I think there needs to be tr- resources put into this. I also think that other nations, especially those in Europe, should enact similar laws. Because if you can imagine if every port in say Western Europe and in North America was under this regime, that means all goods shipped to these massive ports, you know, where there's tremendous transactions of goods occurring would be under a similar regime, I think you could stop most ocean pollution uh, that's coming from ships. In fact, the record in the United States demonstrates that. So through the National Whistleblower Center, where I'm the chair, I'm also an attorney who does these cases, but through the National Whistleblower Center, we are attempting to push the United States to take the lead on this and as I said, we filed a formal petition with the European Union for them to take action.
1: I asked Stephen what it looks like for the whistleblowers once these events begin to unfold. They have to spend a considerable time in the U.S. for these investigations, correct? And then they're, yeah. I imagine it's either difficult or impossible and maybe sometimes un- unnecessary given the financial rewards, um, to find work again. Is that correct?
2: This this is interesting. I really don't know the answer. I know from some people we've worked with have clearly been blacklisted or uh, they can't get, but they, they often know who they are. Many of the cases that we've reviewed and reviewed like almost every single one we could find, as I say, the last 100, many of the cases, they agree to pay the whistleblower through a transaction at the U.S. embassy that's confidential. So, and, and I find this very interesting because in various legislative histories they've taught of these types of laws, they talk about giving a whistleblower money can lead to their ex- the exposure of their identity. So I found it very interesting that, that I, I, I now presume that many of these whistleblowers can remain confidential because they're paying them through the U.S. Embassy, say in Man- Manila, where the whistleblower go in and get the money. And, and that permits the financial transaction to be strict, totally confidential, which to me indicates that the uh, whistleblower can maintain a level of confidentiality. Now, I just don't know that, to be honest, because uh, it just seems like that. From the way they're transacting the financial payments
1: interesting so because i was looking at uh i've been trying to get a sense of how many of these cases are um you know are based on whistleblowers and how many are just you know port state control catches it and i couldn't get a you know coast guard wouldn't tell me um (laughs) nobody nobody would tell me we
2: we have their statements in court and they concede in court that the overwhelming the vast majority of their cases come Mm -hmm. from whistleblowers and that we have those statements online they've made them many times and when we've looked at the APPS cases you know almost all of them I'd say 95 percent have a whistleblower and the ones that don't You really don't know whether they had a whistleblower or not. It's just the information wasn't placed on the record that you could identify. But the better question is how else would they ever know? How else would they know? The the crimes are occurring on the high seas often months before they land in a US port.
1: To finish off, let's hear some advice from George on what companies can do to mitigate the chances of them getting involved in a Marple case what would be your advice to um, ship owners, ship operators, to make sure something like that doesn't happen on one of their vessels?
0: Well, it's a a question we get asked often, and it's a topic which we advise uh, owners and operators all over the world on, right? And and so uh, our our advice is pretty standard and it's pretty simple. First off, you've got to instill a culture of compliance. Uh, And even with doing that, even with, Uh, spending the time and the money and making the effort and giving the crew uh, that are working at sea on on vessels all the tools to do their jobs properly, honestly, and professionally, um, you're still held hostage by the laziest, most dishonest crew member that you have. So what we we constantly uh, preach to our clients is, if you have a compliance culture uh the, the, the crew themselves weed out the bad apples very quickly, which is a good thing. Uh, the second thing we a- advise routinely is that the shoreside staff should be proactive in, in looking for the red flags. And it's simple. From a technical perspective, they should be uh, reviewing on a periodic basis, whether it's weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, the, the oil record book entries and compare that to the sounding logs. If there are unexplained increases in tank volumes or unexplained decreases in tank volumes, that's a red flag. If the, uh, the, the shoreside management uh, observes a huge difference in the amount of bilge water being produced and processed over a period of time and do a comparative analysis, one month versus another month, three months, one quarter versus another quarter. If there's a huge differential between, say, chief engineers or one month versus another month, those are red flags that that at least raises um, the alarm that someone should be making an inquiry why this is different. And then the last thing we advise clients is when the superintendents go on board the vessels, which they do on a relatively routine basis, certainly before COVID and now we're coming out of COVID, it's, it's those programs are back in swing for most of our clients. They should take the time and do a playback on the oil content meter uh, memory chip and make sure that the information that is automatically recorded is uh, in sync with what's being manually written by the crew members in the sounding logs and in the, the oil record book. You know, the dates of the Uh, and times for the stops and starts and the volumes being processed and things like that. That's all discernible from looking at uh, the the automatically recorded data on the oil content meter um, chip. And of course, the last thing that we uh, always preach to clients is uh, take the time to make sure that the maintenance programs are being implemented. Right, uh, One of the, 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 the stock arguments the prosecutors run is that the crew members are taking shortcuts to save time and money for the companies, and the companies don't even know what they're talking about because of course they pay the crew the same amount of money whether they're taking shortcuts or they're uh, actually doing the job properly. So check the equipment, make sure the maintenance is being done and being
1: done in the right intervals. And that's it for today. My deepest thanks to George and Stephen for their insight and expertise. And thank you for listening. Please rate and review the podcast and have a fantastic weekend.